Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show offering unique insights and in-depth analysis featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Live every weekday at noon, then up as a podcast. This is MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs. I've got 30 minutes of express news on developments here in South Africa and around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers and top commentators. It's Monday, the 27th of November. Coming up on the program, the increasing impact of illegal mining in South Africa as the country hits new levels of organized crime. The twin crises of Stage 6 and the chaos at Durban Port. We ask what the impact is going to be on growth in the short term. We'll try to get behind the turmoil at OpenAI, why South African universities are falling behind in the race to digitize, and a new call for GBV legislation on DNA sampling to be amended. The start of a new week, and let's begin the program with this story. Illegal mining, we read, is now a major organized crime worry in South Africa, according to the 2023 Organized Crime Index released by Enact Africa. South Africa is among the top three countries with the highest criminality scores on the continent. The question, I suppose, is should we be surprised? With us now is Jenny Irish Obashiani from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Jenny, first of all, with South Africa ranking so high in these criminality scores, what are the principal factors that have led to the increase, do you think? I think that I think there are a number of factors. So I think when we do our index, um, both the Africa Index and the Global Index, um, we have seen South Africa creep up on both the Africa and the South Africa. So we and and there are a number of factors. I think that one, if you look when we look at it, we look at both our both the criminal actors and the criminal markets, and then we also look at our resilience to actually begin to deal with organized crime. So you have to read the two together. So one of the concerning things is that while we have crept up on the markets and the criminal actors, we have slightly declined um, when it comes to our resilience. And I think in that context, it's understandable that if we are declining in our resilience to organized crime, we are going to see um, an increase in our criminality score, um, our organized crime criminality score. So if we're saying that, that policing of organized crime is, is not as strong as it, as it was in previous indexes, et cetera, we are going to start seeing that that, that criminality then starts to mm. increase. Um, I think also we, 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 we have become a country which has some of the most diverse um, illicit markets. Um, so very often you'll have countries that have specific areas where, where illicit markets are very strong, um, but it's not across the board. I mean, we've been looking at, in our risk assessment on South Africa specifically that we did last year, we looked at 15 very diverse markets that sometimes interlink and we are and 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 we're seeing that organized crime is very strong in all those markets. I think what distinguishes us in some from some of the countries with with lower criminality scores is that we have a diverse range of criminal markets, and that is growing every day. So we're seeing increases in kidnappings taking place, and then copycat kidnappings um, 
that, that are emerging. We're seeing an increase in extortion, etc. And once those things start to take root, and um, once people see the success of extortion, you start to see it blossoming ev- everywhere else around the country. Mm. Um, so I think those are some of the factors. Jenny, you talk about a decline in South Africa's resilience against organized crime. What is that and why the decline? So we look at a number of different things in the resilience. We look at, I mean, South Africa still ranks um, better than some of the other African countries when it comes to to this resilience, but we have seen our scores start to decline. So we look at um, policing and the criminal justice system. How are they functioning with regard to organized crime? Do they have strategies in place? We look at at, at government and um, government responses to organised crime, and I think on those two areas, one of the things that we have picked up is that while we have very effective legislation in place, the implementation of that legislation is always is not always as effective. Then where we kind of score high is that we do have an independent judiciary, we do have an independent media, and that sometimes pushes our resilience score higher. Um, but when we look at things like the criminal justice system, our resilience levels have dipped. Um, so sometimes the, 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 the fact that we are one of the countries with uh, quite high resilience scores is a little bit deceptive because we are high in some areas, but we are dropping quite significantly in other areas. Illegal mining highlighted as a significant threat to the South African economy, and that is something that is controlled, you'll suggest, by, by organized crime syndicates. Absolutely. Jenny Irish Kobachiani from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I think we get the gist of what you're saying, and thank you very much for joining us. This is MoneyWeb at Midday, and let's move on. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. Now, Transnet's new chief executive officer has described the Durban port crisis as a case of Rome burning. This weekend, the country was also plunged into another bout of stage six load shedding. That is said to be costing the country something in the region of 900 million rand a day. Obviously, the impact is dire. I want to get a view now from Investec chief economist Annabelle Bishop. And Annabelle, let's start with the consequences of a return to stage six. So we've seen stage six load shedding really only for two days, the uh, obviously Friday and Saturday of the past weekend. But our um, electricity minister has actually warned that stage six load shedding can cost the country up to a billion rand a day. So, yeah, it is quite worrying, um, Jeremy. And, of course, you know, stage six load shedding in 22, he reminds us, resulted in over 620,000 people losing their jobs. And um, projections are that these numbers will go up to 830,000. So it's a huge worry. But I think we need to unpack, you know, where it came from. And obviously that was due to lower diesel availability for the open gas cycle turbines, you know, the diesel generators, which South Africa uses in times of crisis when our electricity demand exceeds supply. And of course, as well, um, they also um, made some usage of pumped storage, which is, of course, the hydroelectrics we have coming from Lesotho. But essentially, you know, it did cause volatility in the rand. The rand breached 19 to the US dollar on Friday as a consequence of this. And um, we even saw some foreign net selling of South Africa government bonds. So there was quite a substantial amount of mm. outages. And, of course, we had uh, five units, generating units, go off in 24 hours. So it seems like it's been a temporary crisis. Uh, the stage six that's been resolved by the delivery of diesel and our minister as well said that you know over the next three months we're going to get an additional 3,200 megawatts coming online so 
You know, this stage six is not persistent. We saw Sunday with stage four and then Monday with stage three. Look, you know, we, we do have some up and down momentum in the electricity situation as we eventually move towards resolving it. And this weekend, obviously, very unfortunate, especially the impact on the RAND. But looking forward into next year, you know, we do anticipate that we should eventually move to, you know, less um, of these types of incidents of load shedding that, that we saw the past weekend. And Annabelle, add to that the ongoing crisis at the Durban port and you have a real sentiment mm-hmm. issue here, don't we? Yes, and that's exactly right, Jeremy. You know, it comes on the back of a grave concern about this huge container crisis, which now, of course, our transit <laughs> government and officials have said that could last out until um, February next year. I mean, no one really wants to hear that. It's, it's a huge negative impact, both domestically for manufacturers and, of course, you know, vehicle imports as well is a big problem. You know, that um, Durban Harbour obviously uh, also exports a bulk commodities, but it brings in motor vehicles. And it is obviously very damaging for the economy. You know, the bottom line is that obviously seen, if you look at Bloomberg's basket of currencies, emerging market currencies, we've seen the majority of these strengthen on dollar weakness in the anticipation that obviously we've reached the end of the US interest rate hike cycle, that we're going to see um, interest rate cuts next year in the US. But Bloomberg's points out that, you know, really South Africa's actually been left behind here. It's missed out on the biggest rally for this, you know, asset class um, emerging market since January. January. And, you know, not just the load shedding, but also, of course, as well, South Africa's populist policies. We've seen uh, the NHR make progress through um the different uh, bodies it needs to go through to get passed. And of course, now it went through the National Council of Provinces recently. It's on its way to being signed into law by government, so by, by the president and obviously government. So all of these factors are obviously creating negativity for foreign investors. We only have the elections next year, um, likely in April or May. And of course, support for the ANC is expected to wane, which will reduce <laughs> the seats in mm. parliament and make it more difficult for it to pass these types of very populist left-wing policies, but again, it's also an erosion to sentiment. The challenge, of course, is to have a stronger and more robust response from government. Uh, Do you think that is happening? Absolutely. Look, I mean, there is um, a lot of talk about increasing the access for the private sector. There's problems, as we know, with the transmission lines in South Africa, um, electricity, you know, being taken from where it's generated to around the country, mainly in the east of the country and obviously a lot of renewables in the west. So those uh, structural issues need to be overcome. Obviously, uh, supports at the top with government to bring in the private sector, both in terms of, you know, energy generation and transmission for electricity and, of course, in the operation of the ports, bringing in uh, the private sector as well in terms, or should we say sections of the ports and bringing in the private sector in as well for, um, you know, rail lines. All of those factors are very well supported. You know, uh, feedback's been that the problems really come from lower down the chain in terms of implementation. You know, uh, private sector investors often running into regulatory hurdles or slow uh, turnaround from civil servants in terms of obviously needing to get necessary clearance on certain issues. So, you know, I don't think it's a smooth path yet. And I think government actually needs to do a lot more to facilitate private sector involvement and investment in these two key areas, you know, power and freight in South Africa. And if you look at both of these crises, then in the short term, no good news for growth. 
the short term is right, you know, and the short term often can be less than a year. So I would say certainly the next few months. Look, I would say in the second half of next year, there's expectation that we're going to see an improvement in electricity supply, perhaps even in the second quarter. Obviously, the quicker we can clear the backlog of the Durban ports as well, that's extremely important. You know, there have been obviously concerns about the aging infrastructure at the Durban port, the Durban harbour, not able to get ships through in and out quickly. And of course, even these large roll-on, roll shops that come with big containers sometimes even deciding not to even stop at the Durban Harbour because it just becomes too difficult the waiting time. So all of these are really negative factors that South Africa needs to turn around. So I think you're quite right in identifying certainly for the next six to eight months South Africa should continue to see many of these issues. But of course if the Minister says that we're getting another 3,200 megawatts of electricity uh, supply coming online uh, and that's capacity, then obviously that will be helpful. It's not enough to eradicate load shedding and therefore not enough to actually best boost investor sentiment because what investors obviously want is they want free market dynamics in South Africa. They want a lot more private sector participation, provision and supply of electricity, but also, of course, distribution and the same for the ports as well. You know, South Africa needs to see a privately owned port operated by the private sector and our rails need to be boosted as well. So sadly, uh, Jeremy, short term, you know, it's, it's a negative prognosis and I think it's reflected in the currency as well. Longer term, hopefully we start to see some repair and, you know, some quickening of a resolution to some of the issues still continue to hold it back. Annabelle Bishop, I'm going to leave it there. Chief Economist at Investec, appreciate the sentiment. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. All right, I want to move now from the economy to education, and there are 26 public universities in South Africa, yet there is little real digital transformation. In some universities, technology is advanced, in others not. And I would suggest this is becoming a critical issue in terms of skills output and overall competitiveness. I want to shed some light on this now from the consulting firm Accenture. Let me introduce you to uh, Spoo Danchi, who is Associate Director for Public Service. So, Spoo, first of all, why is digital transformation so crucial for the advancement these days of higher education? So, Jeremy, um, you know, high, uh, digital transformation in higher ed is, is, is quite crucial. We're essentially standing at the forefront of this digital revolution, uh, not only in higher ed, but across several sectors. But specifically for higher ed, we need to really be embracing digitization in higher education. It's not just a choice. It's paramount, number one, uh, as a driver for transformative higher education. But also, number two, it's also a decisive solution to our pressing challenges in the local higher education sector. So where do you think South African universities are currently failing in this respect? I think that there's there's quite a number of areas um, in terms of challenges that we need to we need to deal with, uh, Jeremy. One is around our aged infrastructure, right? Uh, we are really struggling because what this is essentially it's it's a balance between you know um, uh, it's a journey between balancing innovation and inclusivity, right? In terms of leveraging or integrating digital tech in high ed, and and there are some significant strides that are being made in digital learning and infrastructure. But focus is also required on overcoming barriers, right? To make it more equitable, uh, you know, make it more accessible, um, not only for certain students, but for all students. So infrastructure is a big problem. Digital literacy is another uh, um, and the likes. The key one there, of course, is accessibility. What can be done to speed up accessibility? 
So around accessibility, we're talking about a number of things. Uh, in there, we're talking the digital divide, where you know there's limited or no access to re reliable internet or digital devices. We're talking economic barriers, where even though there is access to devices, there are some students from low-income families, you know, that are not able to access these digital uh, uh, resources. And and so what, what the opportunity really there is around. Uh, firstly, how do we think differently around infrastructure, not only in urban or modernized areas, but also how do we get more creative to accessing even those areas in, um, you know, that are that are more in the rural areas, etc. So how do we how do we get more innovative around, as an example, utilizing mobile technology in regions where broadband infrastructure is lacking? Or how do we leverage mobile technology? How do we, you know, collaborate with tech um, tech companies? Right, that are present at these different areas where access is really an issue, and 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 several other such ideas. To what extent then is collaboration so important in this respect? Collaboration is crucial. Um, I mean, one of the key things, if we are to get this right, is really around uh, you know pu public-private partnerships, right? And what this talks to uh, Jeremy is really investing in digital infrastructure. It talks to you know including grants specifically aimed at improving internet connectivity and technological resources in in higher institutions, as an example. I spoke about, you know, collaboration uh, with tech companies. So you partner with your tech companies, uh, you know, example, your Centex, et cetera, for infrastructure development. And, and these collaborations can really provide access to advanced tech and expertise. I spoke of utilizing mobile tech in regions where infrastructure is lacking. There's another um, uh, component, which is really partnering with your cloud providers where you know, the, the big opportunity is, is really using these cloud-based services for data storage and management, which then helps in reducing the need for extensive on-site infrastructure uh, to be built in these areas. Is it too simplistic to say that these solutions you suggest come at a high cost, or are there ways around that? I think there are ways around it. Um, and again, it goes back to the, to, the, to the thinking around a phased approach in this. You cannot do everything all at once. So it's really around identifying those priority areas, identifying which of these uh, you know, uh, notions that I made mention of now are viable for this specific area and, and, and really starting small and building from there, right? Um, as opposed to aiming to, uh, to boil the ocean uh, per se. I'll leave it there from Accenture, Associate Director of Public Service, Spu Danchi. Thank you very much indeed. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. Now, this past weekend, several organizations handing over a memorandum to government urging the state to amend legislation to curb violence against women and children. You'll be well aware that we are now into the 16 days of activism. In conversation now with Lifeline Executive Director Sinikiwe Biela. And first of all, what has prompted your call for a change to legislation and what specifically are you talking about in that respect? Uh, Jeremy, that's a very good question. It's because Lifeline is an organization works on the ground. We deal with issues of gender-based violence. We support the survivors of gender-based violence on the ground. We have social workers placed in hospitals and in police stations and in Tutuzela care centers that are providing this service. So we have seen how the current legislation has let the survivors down, especially when it comes to the issues of DNA. So when we were looking at, at all our cases, we realized we have a, a lot of cases of gender-based violence survivors, especially children under the age of 12, that are being withdrawn from South African courts pending DNA. And we also realized that when results comes back three years later or two years later, the specimen is inconclusive, which then makes that case to 
permanently go away. So we then felt that there is no justice if DNA issue is not being addressed properly and to also hold people accountable that should be actually um, rendering this very, very, very mm. important service when it comes to um, gender-based violence survivors. So that what prompted the whole thing. It was the number of cases that have been withdrawn and refusing to do DNA timelessly equals to no justice to the survivors of gender-based violence. We then marched to the KZN legislature last year um, in November 2022 to raise the issues as we are based in KZN. And only then they told us, looking at the amendments to the laws, it's outside of the scope of work. We needed to raise these issues with the national legislature. It was for that reason then this year, Lifeline and other organizations that are Cape Town-based and um, um, KZN-based marched to um, the National Assembly to demand that these laws are reviewed and are changed so that survivors can actually get the justice that they deserve. So two marches in two years, nothing has happened. It seems to me that no one is listening to you or no one's taking you seriously. The first one that was in KZN, I wouldn't um, 100% say they didn't take us seriously. They escalated the matter to the national legislature. So when we marched to the national legislature, we have been in touch with them because of the KZN legislation that escalated issues. Unfortunately, it was outside of the scope of work to amend these laws. So of course now when we went on Saturday to the national legislature, we did not get to meet the speaker of the parliament, which we were looking for, but our um, memorandum of demand was accepted by the official that was representing the Speaker of the Parliament, Miss Angelina Ephraim, and we stated clearly what we want to see happening with the laws or with the legislations that needs to be reviewed. Because basically there are three things that we really demanding that they are being reviewed. If you look at the Sexual Offences and Related Matters Act, which really guides how rape cases should be dealt with in South Africa, there is a loophole there. It does not specify by when DNA results should come back. That's why it takes two years or three years for the results to come back because there's a big loophole. And because there's that loophole, nobody's being held accountable. So our demand is that the the Sexual Offences Act and Related Matters Act is reviewed or amended to put a time frame to say the DNA specimen will be analyzed and results will be back within six months of the DNA specimen being taken from the rape survivor. And it's your contention that this would be improved if each province had its own DNA lab. Am I correct? Yes, yes. Because the backlog comes from the fact that most of these DNA samples are being sent into one lab most of the time. So how difficult and would it course, how difficult would it be for each province to do that? In in our opinion, it should not be difficult because if you look at and the government buildings, there are so many buildings that are empty that are not being utilized. In almost every province, we have these ghost buildings that belong to government. If those ghost buildings could be revamped and then changed into a DNA, even if it's a smallest lab that will only specializes in analyzing cases of gender-based violence, that will actually improve the the justice for the survivors, but also it will take into action what the South African have been saying. Our president last year declared gender-based violence as a first pandemic. But there are no actions, there is no urgency, there is there are so no there, resources no that action, are being put no into gender-based there's no violence. Action, 
There's no action or urgency which suggests that there is a complete lack of political will here. And again, I put yes. it to you that in spite of all the good work that you're doing, you're probably wasting your time. We don't feel we're wasting our time and we feel that we will not stop until our demands falls into the right ears. We believe that if all the South Africans we give up, then we'll be giving our country to the perpetrators to rule it. So even though it's hard and it's at times it hurts, it, it, it hurts to actually sit and see that survivors are suffering. But if all of us decide that our fight is not being heard, then perpetrators will take over and we refuse as lifeline to um, give the country to the perpetrators to actually take over. We're saying no to that and we'll keep fighting and we'll keep pushing these demands until somebody actions it and until somebody listens. But we'll also call the president to actually start delivering from the promises. Because even in August, mm. during the Women's Month, our president made an announcement that all um, perpetrators of gender-based violence will not be released on bail. But they are still being released on bail, so it was just a talk show. So we are also calling him to start putting actions into what he had said publicly so that we can see that the political will is there. He can't get people excited for nothing. We demanded he start putting actions into it. Thank you very much indeed. Sinikiwa Biela, uh, Lifeline Executive Director in Peter Maritzburg. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. And finally today, the Wall Street Journal is reporting that OpenAI's rivals this week racing to capitalize on the turmoil engulfing the artificial intelligence powerhouse, targeting its customers with incentives to switch to their platforms. So the question is, what's behind the chaos? How long is it going to continue for? And are we impacted in any way here in South Africa? Toby Shapshak is the editor-in-chief of the tech magazine Stuff. So Toby, first of all, how do you interpret the recent turmoil at OpenAI? Well, it's fascinating, isn't it, Jeremy, that so much attention is being paid to this rather small company. But actually, it's the poster child of this new movement of artificial intelligence called generative AI. And it's that it can generate something new. So you give a voice prompt or a very specific series of prompts and ChatGPT, which is made by OpenAI, can give you something that is effective, usable, a leap forward in terms of technology and what is possible with technology and pretty mind-blowing to boot. What happened with the board firing is that originally OpenAI was set up as a non-profit, but when they realized in 2018 how much computing power they would need to achieve what they do, and they do, it's an extraordinarily computer-intensive process they started looking for funding and they set up a for-profit component and this is the division of open ai that microsoft mm. and others invested into but the non-profit that was originally set up they are still the people on the board and the people who are responsible for running the company they have a, a mandate to be directors not for the investors but for humanity quote unquote and their focus was that they were trying to rein in rampant innovation or rampant commercialization of these AI services and be more conscious of the potential dangers that they could result in. 
Toby, whichever way you look at it, though, rampant commercialization is now front and center. You have Google matching OpenAI's pricing, and then Amazon is offering multiple generative AI systems in contrast with OpenAI's approach. So no doubt there is a war for market share now. Yes, there is, Jeremy, and it's no longer one standout uh, service provider versus the others. A lot of these other companies have been working on what's called large language models, LLMs. You'll hear a lot more about these in the future. They are, in essence, a monstrously sized database, and it is this kind of database of language and the usage of language and what you could do with it that has enabled generative AI to produce the results that it does. And it gets better and better with each iteration, GPT-4, which came out this year, as opposed to GPT-3, which came out on the 30th of November last year, nearly a year ago, when this boom happened. You know, they got to a million users within five days, 100 million users within you know, less time than mm. Elon Musk could make everyone flee Twitter and go to Facebook's threads. And significantly powerful services from everyone. And of course, the open AI board's thinking was probably correct. And yes, they should make sure that these dangers are cognizant and people are aware of them. But all they've done is kind of fluff their opportunity. They didn't explain what the problem was. They they just really did it completely wrong. And as a result, kind of like Jacob Zuma was advising them on how to fire a, a the finance minister get like a hand-scribbled note that looks like it's a child's homework. That's the kind of, they never said what the problem was about why he wasn't, quote, consistently candid, end quote, which is going to go down, I think, in general usage, a bit like consciously Mm. uncoupling has. Uh, You know, they didn't explain what their problem was, and now they've just handed the reins of power, certainly all of the interest to commercial opportunities, because now, of course, everybody's competing against them. And, And had Sam Altman not returned to OpenAI, well, that company would have just almost ceased to exist. Almost all of the 770 employees threatened to resign. They've signed an open letter. Microsoft had already hired Altman and and his co-founder, Greg Brock, who was the chairman of the board, but not involved in the ousting. And offered, Microsoft had offered all these employees to match their compensation. So OpenAI would have ceased to exist and it would have all, you know, been a, a Microsoft division. It would have been the most spectacular ability of Microsoft to have bought a company without actually paying for it. But it's reversed it around, and, and it doesn't really change the status quo. All of a sudden, everybody's racing ahead to see what they can do with this technology. And of course, thankfully, the various governments around the world have realized they have to do some very rapid regulation uh, development and, and implementation so that there's legislation that governs this because we've seen from the last two decades of, of Silicon Valley's self-policing that all it's done is create a surveillance capitalist state. Facebook and Google and a bunch of other data brokers know more about us than George Orwell ever imagined in 1984 and, and we gave it to them for free. And Toby, in that respect, has there been any clear thinking in South Africa as far as regulation is concerned? I mean, I'd love to be able to answer that question seriously, Jeremy, but I, I don't think anyone can think beyond the next election. You know, the electric vehicle policy that is desperately needed by the automotive industry, they've kicked that can down the road because it may have an impact 
on unions who work in the automotive industry. So the ANC is going to not talk about this kind of stuff. You remember the hype around the fourth industrial revolution. I mean, now that that hype bubble has been deflated, no one talks about it anymore. You would think that this would be something, you know, that that is a big opportunity. The recently, uh, the South African country manager, MD of of Microsoft, who's now become the Africa uh, director, was saying that if Africa could capture just 10% of the AI opportunities that everyone foresees, it could lift our economy. I forget the figure, but it was a significant number. And that's the kind of remarkable possibility that this technology Mm. offers. And geographically, it doesn't really matter where you are if you can you know, get involved with it. Where are our smart youngsters? Instead of trying to make the new Instagram or the new TikTok, you know, the the young entrepreneurs of the world are working on who can make the next open AI. Europe has has a particular focus on this. You know, there's no big tech startups out of Europe, not since Spotify, really. Um, And open uh, AI may be the, you know, the opportunity for the rest of the world to catch up with what will be the next generation of services or things we do with the internet. I'm going to leave it there, Toby Shapshak. Thank you very much indeed. And that's where we leave the program for today, MoneyWeb at Midday. We are live at noon weekdays, then up as a podcast. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.